Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the LSE, and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy event on informed consent. Uh, tonight's event is part of our Ethics Matters series, which explores the practical relevance of recent developments in moral theory. My name is Peter Dennis. I'm an LSE Fellow in Philosophy and a Forum for European Philosophy Fellow. And to discuss this important to topic, we're extremely privileged to have Honor O'Neill, who is Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of Cambridge and a crossbench member of the House of Lords. She has written widely in ethics and political philosophy, um, especially on issues of consent and trust. And her most recent book, Rethinking Informed Consent in Bioethics, is published by Cambridge University Press and is co-authored with Neil Manson. Professor O'Neill will be answering questions about her work put to her by Jonathan Wolfe, um, who is Professor of Philosophy at UCL. He is also widely known for his books on ethics and political philosophy, as well as his work with government and NGOs, advising on policy issues such as healthcare, uh, gambling and animal testing. Professor Wolf will introduce the topic and he will direct our event for about 40, 45 minutes until there will be time uh, for questions. Um, but before I hand over to him, please join me in welcoming our two participants, Honora O'Neill and Jonathan Wolfe. Well, thank you very much, Peter. It, it's a great honour to uh, be involved in this event. I, I was particularly pleased to have the opportunity to ask Nora some questions um, in return for questions you asked me 30 years ago in defence of my, when I was trying to defend my MPhil thesis, which I, I realise it, it, it's 30 years this year uh, from that time. I remember the event. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, very soon I'll have answers to some of your questions, I think. <laughs> um, so uh, today uh, we're here to discuss informed consent. This book, Rethinking Informed Consent in Bioethics, that Peter just mentioned, is the uh, background to the discussion. Um, in, informed consent has really became, become the central concept in bioethics. Uh, for many people, if, you're, if you think about bioethics, what you're thinking about is informed consent. And um, it's interesting to think, you know, how did that situation come about? Why is it so powerful? And the standard story, really, uh, is that the notion of informed consent is a consequence of a set of abuses in medical research and medical practice uh, that culminated in the Nazi experiments. But not only the Nazi experiments have been uh, discoveries about research in Sweden, in the United States, where um, people were subjected to invasive forms of medical research, also in some cases treatment, without their knowledge. And you know, later on this was revealed, uh, it seemed to be a scandal, and in response various codes of ethics have grown up which try to regulate both medical practice and uh, medical research and some other topics which we'll come across later on. And the idea of informed consent, I think, is a very powerful one. First of all, think about just consent on its own uh, without worrying 
too much about why we add the word informed. If you are subject to medical treatment without your consent, this seems, on the face of it, highly problematic. Why should anyone have the right to give you any type of treatment unless you've agreed to it? On the other hand, if you do agree to it, then they would seem to have a defense against any objection you might later make. That if you've agreed to something, then you've given your permission, and that gives the person who you're dealing with a type of moral freedom, uh, a moral freedom from liability later on. So consent in ordinary life turns action which could even be criminal, but it could be an assault. Consent in ordinary life turns that type of action into perfectly acceptable and legitimate action. And for example, in political philosophy, uh, the notion of consent has been very important in justifying the state. So there's a whole tradition that says, on the face of it, governments are illegitimate, but if we've given the government our consent, that is sufficient to justify them. In fact, often it is said both necessary and sufficient. So in ordinary life, then, uh, giving consent is a very powerful way of changing moral responsibility and moral liability. The term informed consent, though, is important because there's a question, you know, what does it mean to give consent? Uh, someone might trick you into saying yes to something. Have you consented to it or not? Well, if you didn't know what it was you were agreeing to, then it seems that you haven't really consented and there's been no transfer of uh, or, or no change to liability or responsibility. So the notion of informed consent has this idea that if you consent in full knowledge of what you're consenting to, then you have no complaint against what has been done to you and you have given permission to allow it to go ahead. So if we go back to the 1940s, 1950s, uh, later on forms of medical paternalism where um, you know, doctors, dentists would do things because they thought it was in your best interests, then informed consent seems to be an important move forward. Um, I remember my mother uh, telling me, very shocked in the 1970s, uh, she'd just come out of the dentist with my younger brother. And the dentist said to my mother, in the end, I decided not to take Ben's teeth out. And she said, they hadn't even discussed that before. That he felt, as a dentist, he was a professional. And if there and then he felt that my brother's teeth should have been taken out, he would have just done it. He was in charge. It was up to him. So he told my mother afterwards he'd decided not to, after not having the discussion in the first place. So you think, well, informed consent surely should have been sought in that case. No, not of my brother, he was too young, but of my mother or my father or some other competent adult. So you can see against the background of medical paternalism, uh, research, abuse of the Nuremberg trials type, informed consent looks like a leap forward from where we were in the paternalistic and abusive dark ages. But we're told that uh, we have to rethink informed consent, that despite all those apparent advantages, it's not quite what it seems. Uh, and we are told by Anora and Neil Manson, the co-author, that in fact this notion of informed consent leads to intractable problems. So perhaps we, we can start with a, 
a, a question we don't need to get in too much detail just to begin with, but, but just think about you know, what gave rise to your anxieties, first of all, about informed consent? You know, what is problematic about the story I've just told? I think the story is correct. I'm one of where you can characterise the uh, sort of moral history of the last 50 years is as the rise and rise of informed consent. Um, okay. Yes. Uh, is, can you hear that at the back? Okay. Uh, the uh, informed consent was not, it, outside political philosophy, an enormously discussed notion until the last 50 years and as Joe says it was in particular uh, the uh, experiments done by the Nazis that uh, led to it becoming a central notion to see the text I think what uh, is useful is to go to what's known as the Nuremberg Code it's actually just a little document written by lawyers who were assisting at the trial of these uh, criminals, and uh, they, uh, the defence had alleged that what they did as doctors doing research on human subjects was no different to what other doctors were doing anyhow. That was the proposed line of defence. Now, clearly it was different in a number of ways, uh, but this prompted uh, the prosecution to get an analysis of why consent mattered. Now, I would note the following. Nobody thinks that doctors who had been able to get consent to what was done would have been doing something permissible. Informed consent isn't always sufficient to show that what's done is okay. But it also, and Joe alluded to this, is not always necessary. Uh, Let us shift our gaze from medical interventions that affect an individual to public health measures. For example, clean water, clean air, uh, proper sewage and rubbish disposal. These are probably more fundamental for human health than any clinical interventions, but they are not subject to informed consent because they have to be set at a certain level for an entire population. And you can't take things that are, as we say, public goods designed for a whole population and get consent for them. You can use political processes to get uh, some uh, degree of endorsement, but that is actually a completely different thing. Informed consent is, by its nature, intrinsically very individualistic, and I would contend it's not necessary, it's not sufficient, and when it is relevant, it has to meet some quite difficult standards. So can I take you back to the public health examples? So so these are interesting cases. The uh, idea, the examples you give, uh, clean water, waste disposal, uh, these are certainly things that have changed the lives of human beings. They were brought in for medical reasons, and no one thought that you needed everyone's consent to that as a practical matter. Um, But is it because you have to have the same level for everyone, or is it because those actually 
it's very hard to see what the objection would be other than the cost. So if you take an example that is being discussed at the moment, actually fluoride in the water. So I, I was under the impression that we have fluoride in the water in this country. I've just been reading some things from the uh, British Medical Association which says it's only a very small proportion of the country that has fluoride in the water, surprisingly enough. Um, now, so fluoride in the water is put there because it's meant to help teeth, particularly developing teeth of young children. Um, but it has possible negative side effects. Um, certainly the critics think that. Would you say that we don't need the consent of the public in, in that case, that it's mistaken to hold it up because the same level is needed for everyone? When you see those photographs of the teeth of very young children in Birmingham where the level of naturally occurring fluoride is extremely low, uh, I think you've got to have a very robust argument to say that the water should not have fluoride added. Fluoride is not... Now, some people imagine chemicals are ipso facto bad. They should remember everything material is made of chemicals. It's not something that some strange things happen and have and other things don't. So I think the, the uh, case for fluoride is uh, strong and uh, also there is a way round. If you really have a conscientious objection, you can buy bottled water that is fluoride-free. So it's one of the easier cases, in mm -hmm. my view. Um, and, uh, but in the main, I'd say, we're just barking up the wrong tree if we're trying to settle this by consent procedures. It, there are many, many other things. For example, take clean air. I take it because it's much more difficult to segregate the air that all of us breathe. If uh, we have to make some decision or other decision about what pollutants we will not allow, and we've made many such decisions as a society, uh, for example, uh, no more lead in petrol. It was discovered to be harming children's development in large ways. Uh, these decisions, it seems to me, uh, require a political consensus, but they don't require individual sign-up. And you can't, so to speak, turn around and say, me, I want some dirty air provided because I didn't consent to this change. Mm. Uh, and uh, the, uh, I mean, in short, although I know there are many conceptions of public goods, and those of you who are economists will recognise the different sorts of public good that one's alluding to, it seems to me these are the basic cases that lead one to realise that informed consent can't be useful across the board. The reason why it was so uh, became so useful is that, or so much used, is that basically modern bioethics has, until the last decade, been essentially clinical ethics and has neglected public health ethics. That's changed, I'm glad to say. There's now a lot of work on public health ethics, including global public health ethics. And uh, as these are the biggest determinants of health and disease, it seems to me a tremendously important and good change that we are not obsessing about trying to squeeze public health measures uh, into the right format for being interventions on individuals. So I, I completely agree with you about the nature of bioethics and the relatively recent change. So until probably 
what, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, bioethics was really a, a branch of professional ethics uh, about doctor-patient relationships or sometimes researcher-subject relationships. And uh, you know, largely it was focused on clinical decision Making And this is why you know, people still talk about consenting patients. They use consent as a verb. You have to go around and consent your patients before you can do various th- other things to them. Um, so I, I think anyone who, who listened to that argument would have to accept that there are going to be areas of public health or population health, as it's sometimes called, where it's just not possible or realistic to think that informed consent is going to be needed for invention interventions at public health level. But someone who wanted to hold on to the notion of informed consent is going to say, I give you that. Um, It's not possible to do it in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. But uh, they might say, in cases where it's possible, it's necessary. That it's not possible everywhere, but but where it is, we have to have it. Uh, Would you object to that as well? Um, I think that we have to take a careful view of how regularly it is possible. If the central principle of clinical ethics, that's treating individual patients, were informed consent, then I think we would have to raise very large questions about a great deal of medical treatment. A great deal of medical treatment is given to people who are too young, too frail, too demented, unconscious, in no condition to consent. Now, sometimes we reach for a substitute. We say, okay, uh, the child can't consent, let's have parental consent. Or uh, this person uh, who's having a schizophrenic episode can't consent, uh, let's have uh, some other process. In fact, we have a legal process called sectioning there. So uh, one of the things to realize is that it's only in what you might call the center ground, namely the ordinary clinical treatment of people who are what John Stuart Mill spoke of as in the maturity of their faculties and are at that moment conscious Um, It's only those people who can even be asked for consent. So we clearly can't turn over the whole of clinical ethics to inform consent requirements because a great deal of clinical treatment, possibly the majority, because guess which stages of life we get lots of medical treatment in, a great deal of it is of people who, when they are treated, cannot give consent. And I'm not even saying informed consent, cannot give consent. Okay. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you what we should do instead. Mm. Uh, Before we get there, uh, uh, I'm going to ask you a question I know you will hate. uh, Great. But it's it's one we have to get on the table because I'm I'm sure it will be in the heads of some people who know your broader work. Uh, And this is the uh, apparent incongruity that some people have seen between your work as you know, one of the leading interpreters and defenders of Kant's moral philosophy and the objection to informed consent. Because as you well know, there's a line of arguments, good or bad, that says you know, Kantian moral philosophy is based on the value of autonomy. In order to respect autonomy, we have to respect the consent, ideally the informed consent of individuals. So actually, it's Kantian moral philosophy that's responsible for the rise of informed consent. But here you are, a Kantian moral philosopher, arguing against it. Are you not contradicting yourself? 
You knew I'd love that question. (laughs) (laughs) And I do love it because it allows me to explain uh, why uh, the uh, equation between autonomy as it is understood in the post-World War II world and autonomy as Kant understood it is it's a very slender connection. Uh, we think of autonomy as something that we predicate of people. Uh, she's very autonomous. People are more or less autonomous. Uh, some people uh, uh, un- in certain conditions uh, may be said to lose their autonomy or a child to grow and become more autonomous. Kant never spoke about autonomous persons or autonomous selves. His use of the word autonomy is predicated of principles. Certain principles are principles of autonomy, others of heteronomy. Of course he thinks people are free agents, but that's not what he used the word autonomy for. And I regard it as one of the sort of persistent, interesting, uh, but uh, uh, really big misreadings of Kant to think that what he was about was individual autonomy. Now, one of the ways you can find out Uh, how it happened is ask yourself who used the word autonomy before let's say uh, the 1950s and 60s beginning perhaps with existentialists but continuing with many people in the liberal democracies who used the term and the extraordinary answer is very very few people take John Stuart Mill who wrote a wonderful book on liberty He talks about individuality. Well, surely he talks about autonomy. No, he doesn't. Mill does not use the word autonomy except in one context. In his essay on representative government, he speaks about um, certain sorts of polities uh, as autonomous. That's the classic jurisprudential sense of the term autonomy. An autonomous state or city makes its own laws, a colony has its laws given to it by the mother state or mother city. It's an imperial relationship. And it's one of those extraordinary shifts in terminology that the term autonomy came up in post-World War II writings and people assumed, because it was the same word, that must have been what Kant was writing about. I know of no evidence, and this has been clearly understood by people writing on Kant's moral philosophy for probably the last 20 years. So that's very, very interesting. So I'm I'm now wondering who it was that introduced the term autonomy uh, into philosophical literature, because it's, it's everywhere now. Uh, it's everywhere, not just philosophical, it's everywhere yeah. in popular literature. Mm. And uh, I think there's a little clue, it's quite an interesting little clue. When you go back to the Nuremberg Code, which doesn't use the word autonomy, but why? what did they think consent was for? Not as uh, uh, has come to be the, the sort of uh, received view for protecting people's autonomy. It was to prevent some really fundamental sorts of wrong, uh, protect people from really fundamental wrongdoing. Consent was needed to prevent force, fraud, duress, and deception. Those were the things that were worrying uh, and 
which uh, the, per the people who drafted the code realised that's what made the Nazi medical research utterly different from acceptable medical research. It was imposed by force, by fraud, by duress, by deception. And it's these major classical sorts of wrongdoing that consent was a way of operationalising not a perfect procedure, but a degree of protection against force, fraud, duress, and deception. Mm. And, uh, you know, that, in a down-to-earth way, that makes sense to me, that that's what you can use consent for. I don't think we should assume that always consent protects against these things. Some of you will have read the appalling story of the German cannibal, and I forget his name. Uh, but his victim consented to being eaten and killed, of course. Um, what was he called? It was it was a Meissner, something. Muse, yeah, some name yeah. like that. A name beginning with M. We agree <laughs> up at the front. Somebody will. Remember. Someone can Google it. Surely. Somebody can yeah. Google it and remember it. Owen Myers, or something like that. Myers. Yeah, that's him. You, yeah. you and And anyhow, here, here's a case where you can see why the Nuremberg assumptions, although generally true, that consent will prevent false fraud, duress, and deception. If you get somebody whose state of mind is such that he consents to being killed and eaten, well, it won't protect him. Uh, mm. Now, to go back to the medical practice, which you asked about a moment ago, uh, that is why uh, the medical profession has never dropped the requirement that you act in the best interest of your patient. That's supposed to be sound a bit paternalistic, but the point is, if you strip away that protection limited, imperfect as it is, and say, oh, well, anything goes if you get consent, uh, you risk many things. So if you imagine a medical practice where one said, well, anything is acceptable between consenting adults, to use a well-known phrase, what do you then get? Well, of course, uh, the outer reaches of uh, cosmetic surgery, fine if everyone consents, the outer reaches of experimental treatments of all sorts. Medical regulation will fall if you try to make consent the sole principle of medical ethics. doesn't mean that consent shouldn't be used in the middle ground as a useful way of operationalizing some protection for patients. I think um, you, you've put your finger on something there and, and that we don't even have to go to these exotic examples to see the limits of consent. So you know, there is a slogan in law that says something like, you know, consent is no injury, or if you've consented to something... Volenti non fit in uria. Um, but in, in fact, uh, the, the law doesn't follow that principle at no. all. Uh, it, it, you know, consent is no offence in certain uh, civil matters, but in the criminal law, there's a lot that you're not allowed to consent Absolutely. to. You can't consent to your own murder. You can't consent to your own uh, assault. There are certain things, of course, where consent changes the nature of the act. Uh, but there are all sorts of things that we're not permitted to mm. consent to. Um, in short, the law is a great deal more protective of mm. uh, human beings in, as it were, the, their frailty and their openness to exploitation and persuasion than you might think. Mm. And a society in which people relied solely on uh, 
consent um, or even consent mm. among adults uh, uh, would be a, a much uh, less protective society yeah. than we now have. So um, just to uh, summarise some of the things we, we've got mm. on the table so far, the idea that consent is not necessary for interventions, I, I think, um, is relatively straightforward to accept because of the public health yes, not, cases. not always necessary. It, no. Yeah, it's not, al- not always necessary. Mm. Consent isn't always necessary. The public health cases, also cases for people who are not in a position to consent or um, and uh, extended consent may be really something of a myth in those cases. I think it's more striking now to see the argument that consent isn't always sufficient mm. to give permission either because I think a lot of people would have conceded the non-necessary in emergency or public health cases. But it's more striking to say that even if people have consented, that that doesn't always justify the Mm -hmm. action or give a moral exemption, even when it's an informed Mm -hmm. consent. So, having disposed of informed consent, or at least limited... Well, it hasn't disposed, it's just limited. limited. It's not always necessary, it's not always sufficient. So it's difficult, actually, for for philosophers trained in the analytic tradition to know what to do next when you say something isn't necessary and it's not sufficient. What is it, then? Um, But I I suppose the answer is facilitating or helpful in some cases. I think it's the the Nuremberg Code... um, uh, wasn't so dumb in that it picked out some of the very serious wrongs that can be committed, not only, of course, mm. by doctors, uh, where if you had a consent requirement, you could avert the ro- wrong. If you're not allowed to use force or fraud or deception or duress and some other things, uh, overreaching, it's called. Mm. I'm no, not a lawyer, and I always have difficulty with that one. But if you're not allowed to use those... Uh, because you have to get consent. That shows something. But I think the place to go next is to wonder why the contemporary phrase is always informed consent. We've been talking Mm. about consent so far. Mm. Why do people say informed consent, and what do they mean by informed consent? Because I think if we look at that, that might show us an additional range of... um, uh, restrictions, which we pretty sensibly make on the use of consent requirements. So does that then lead us in the direction of uh, you being able to say what you would want to put in the place, in place of informed consent? Well, uh, I'm inclined uh, uh, not to be uh, very uh, demanding here. Uh, there is a tremendous movement uh, by people who admire consent and think it can do more work than I think it can, uh, to say what we need is uh, really superb consent. So it has to be informed, please, fully informed, and uh, that has been translated in some recent context to saying it must be wholly explicit and wholly specific. So that, in saying it's wholly specific, it's saying you've got to have, as it were, all the uh, details in the consent. So I don't just consent to have my appendix out. Uh, I have to sign a form with all the details about the who, the where, the what, the expectations. I have been told the risks. I do understand the risks. And you sign up to all this stuff. Uh, and wholly, So that's making the process explicit and what is done specific. 
Now, I have to say there's a very great limitation to that. I was on a, um, a committee in Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, and one of my colleagues devised an extremely perfect consent form for people who were diagnosed with breast cancer. And it's a very interesting example because the, the, that, uh, along with many other conditions, is tailor-made for quite specific and explicit consent. Why? Well, breast cancer tends to happen to people in the maturity of their faculties. It's not happening to children. Uh, it, it, it's not even that common among the very elderly. Secondly, when it happens, it's very serious, and you can take a lot of time on the consent procedure. Uh, thirdly, uh, you can take time on the consent procedure, and so you can manage to have conversations and written documents and, and the surgeon and the patient uh, sign a shared understanding of what's going to happen. You can make it pretty well informed. A great deal of medical treatment, for quite other reasons than the incapacity of the patient, uh, isn't like that. It has to be done rather rapidly. It's too technical for patients to understand the full detail. Uh, it isn't significant enough to take the amount of time that was being taken over the Addenbrooke Protocol for informed consent for those diagnosed with breast cancer. So you can see there's a whole lot of practicality behind the idea that uh, consent should be fully informed and even when it's fully informed of course you can't get everything into the consent um, but uh, on the other hand go the other direction and ask yourself about uh, consent that isn't adequately informed and your best examples will probably not be in the medical area where people try quite hard but um, think about when you download software box comes up you want to download it, it's a EULA, an end-user license agreement. You tick and you click, and you've got it. You, there was 49 pages of terms and conditions to which you've agreed. Because you're a sensible person, you didn't open it up, and you didn't read it, and if you had, you probably couldn't have understood all the terms and conditions. That's the sort of bogus... Uh, consent that is going on all around. So I can't help interrupting. I, I think there was a company testing this in the United States a couple of years ago that put in at page 34 uh, something like, I, I promise to hand over my soul to the company. <laughs> That's right. Um, and uh, they, they had that up for a month or two and no one complained about it. So, uh, When we say no one, it really is no one. I was uh, giving a talk on consent and trust to an audience largely of accountants. And as you can imagine, they were a meticulous lot. So to try and warm things up, I said, how many of you have had travel insurance in the last year? And most hands went up. So I then said, and how many of you read the terms and conditions? Mm -hmm. And uh, two nerdy hands went up. <laughs> so you, you have to ask yourself, consent procedures are all around, but mm -hmm. frankly, many of them are utterly bogus. Yeah. And there's somebody at the LSE, uh, uh, Michael Power, does mm -hmm. any, anybody know him? 
Well, he is here, or was here, at the Alice Yes, at the LSE. He's written Mm. a wonderful pamphlet. I mean, his book on the Audit Society in the 1990s Mm. is really excellent. But he wrote a pamphlet called The Risk Management of Nearly Everything. And Mm. if you go to it, he has a couple of pages of diatribe on small print. Mm. Why do people use small print? You may have thought it was to save paper. No, it's because you don't want the punters to read it. You want it to have been technically possible for them to to have read it, because then you're going to uh, say, well, they consented. Mm. The the, the way in which um, the focus in ethics has been uh, on consent in this way uh, came home to me when I was on an ethics committee uh, looking at non-NHS protocols involving uh, members of the public, UCL. So, so these were anthropologists or psychologists who were seeking consent for, for you know, nothing very damaging on the whole. And at the uh, training session I went to, <coughs> we, we were told that there were going to be special concerns about vulnerable groups. I thought, well, this is very good. So we're very worried about vulnerable groups. Okay, so who are the vulnerable groups? Well, they're prisoners, uh, children, and people of diminished cognitive capabilities. So I thought, that's pretty good. They're they're vulnerable groups. It's it's excellent if uh, we're taking special care. Um, But then I I just, out of curiosity, asked, why are these vulnerable groups? And no one knew why those were the vulnerable groups. And so I, I did a bit of hunting around, and I found the reason why these are vulnerable groups is that consent from them would be problematic. So children, it's, you know, it's difficult to get consent, valid consent from children. It's difficult to get valid consent from people with diminished cognitive capabilities. And um, consent from prisoners is also problematic because that's under conditions of duress, probably. And you're so had, a criterion. So it had nothing to do with social justice, but simply the difficulty of getting informed consent out of some groups. So we, as a committee were safeguards of informed consent, but nothing else, really. That, yeah. uh, and and mm. what one has to see, I think the reason for the rise and rise of informed consent in discussion of ethics, as we see not just in medical and bioethics, mm. but really across a wide spectrum, is that it is taken to be sufficient to lay off liability. Mm. And uh, uh, that end-user licence agreement is all about that, it, it's it's uh, not about um, uh, an agreement between the consumer or the end user, as he or she gets called in this context, and the company. Okay. So in your book, um, you, you talk about developing a notion of communicative transactions mm. as a way of perhaps moving in a more sensible direction. Could you say a little bit about what you mean? I think what we uh, were focused on is that uh, consent, as it has uh, been institutionalized in biomedicine and beyond, is... uh, It's very much a process. I remember watching one of those American sitcoms, and, as you say, consent is used as a verb, and a, a voice wafted across the emergency room, wherever it was, saying... Doctor, have you consented her? Mm. And it, 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 in a way, it undermines the decent intention behind consent when you turn it into a, uh, a tick box exercise. 
and that's what it has become. Uh, what we were pointing to is the importance of actual communication and we say communicative transactions, which is a bit of a mouthful, but I think that as with most things where one's thinking of requirements on the way words are used, it is the speech act and not the speech content that counts. And therefore, what really counts for the doctor seeking in, uh, patient consent is did the patient, albeit in a rough and ready way, actually grasp what the diagnosis was, what the prognosis was, what the treatment was, what the aftermath of the treatment would be. These are the sort of material things that a patient needs to have some grip on. And, uh, of course, it's very tempting for uh, a doctor dealing constantly with a certain procedure to imagine that the patient, even the patient whom he or she knows quite well, has a grip on all these things. Many patients don't or they can't imagine what it would be like uh, uh, to have this procedure. And they may, of course, be overjoyed because it was all so marvellous, but they may be, uh, say, but you never told me this. And so the question of the quality of communication seems to me very fundamental to proper treatment in clinical ethics and research ethics. Uh, and... Actually, if you think about the ethics of communication, people don't often call it that, but I think that's what we're talking about. It's often very poorly understood. Now, in consent context, the, the sign of how poor the understanding of communication is is that people don't talk about communication. They talk about disclosure. They talk about the doctor disclosing uh, as though it were like, you know... Uh, putting it up on the notice board or handing a piece of paper. Mm. But what you actually need to do is to have that conversation with the patient. Do you understand that this is what we'll do? Do you understand that you probably won't be able to do this or that subsequently? Do you understand that, uh, yes, it is risky, but no, it's not more risky than the following, using some quite homely comparison. And we all of us have a temptation to use too much technical language when we're talking about something we understand well. But for the point of view of the patient, it surely matters that it be much more conversational and that there be checks that it's understood. Uh, one thing that's also under discussion at the moment is um, whether the term patient is the right one anymore. And, and that you, because it gives you this one way understanding of what the medical practice is. You have the doctor and you have the patient who is passive. Um, and I think a lot of people have been trying to work out, you know, is there a better word for the person who's going to the doctor and in many cases is also involved in their own care than to what, think what of them in the... better words? Well, I don't know. I think... So I, I've been having this discussion for about 10 years. Um, and client, customer... Uh, they're all much worse than patients. Much, much worse. It's, um, like, it's like calling you a, a customer when you're yeah. a, a passenger on a train. Or co-caregiver or something oh. along those lines, which is quite awful. But should anyone come up with the, the right name, then they can really uh, get very but, famous but, and quickly. And isn't this a reflection yeah. of what you said before? Why did autonomy come to be so important? Mm big story, but one of the corollaries is people thought it's demeaning to be called a patient. No, it isn't. When I go to the doctor, I want to be treated as a patient, please, not a co-caregiver. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah. I bet you don't. I, I bet I, I, I should think you're you're quite engaged in discussing things with your doctor rather than taking what your doctor says. Uh, oh, uh, of course, I ask yeah. questions. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let us take some questions here. Uh, yes, please. Uh, yes, sorry, you, you said, yep. Yeah. Uh, for a microphone, yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you very uh, much, very inspiring. Um, a better word would be individual. I would like to be treated as an individual, not as a patient. Mm. Um, but the, the question I have is, is, is not choice a really important issue? If, if it's a choice between having a the op or dying, then, of course, consensus to the op you know, it's kind of the difference between life and death. But, but if it's a choice between this op, that op, another op, or no op, then some other treatment, then consensus becomes a very different thing. Um, you didn't really kind of make that clear where you see choice in relation to consensus. Well, uh, it's consent rather than consensus that uh, is the... Yes. Um, it's a very interesting question how accurate a model of... Uh, the uh, medical process we can get if we uh, construe it as a matter of choice. Uh, Note that there's quite a limited menu is on offer and uh, that the doctor is not allowed to offer things that are off the menu. I mean, if the doctor says, I would go dancing in the moonlight if I were you... Uh, you will have a complaint, a basis for a complaint. So it's a very constrained and regulated choice. Within that, choice is really important. And, and why it's important is much more elementary than anything to do with the importance of individual choice. It is that if somebody does something to you that you have refused, that's assault, that's battery, and that is quite fundamental. So... Go back to the force, fraud, duress, and deception. One of the things that we're being uh, seeking to protect people against, not just when they're patients, but generally, is being forced or uh, uh, subject to fraud or attacked or the rest of it. And consent is a way of operationalizing that that doesn't happen. Bad things can happen when one chooses, but even worse things can happen if something is done by force, by fraud, or by deception. Um, Well, anybody who knows me knows this is a big thing in my life. I had some surgery five years ago, and as far as I'm concerned, I did not give informed consent because all of the research that I have done about what has happened to me since that surgery was all very predictable, and I was not informed, and I would not have given consent if I had been. My sense is that when I bring up or discuss the importance of good communication, of respectful communication, of a culture of respect in the medical community, people get angry at me. There's a, there's a defensiveness. Doctors don't like it when you come into the office with a list of your symptoms and you know your medical history and you know what you're allergic to. I'm finding out that there's a massive amount of resentment and they're just, you know, you're, you're not a patient, you're an adversary. And that there is a very adversarial kind of relationship going on as well as a paternalistic one that... I mean, I I don't want to... What I find, for example, in the UK, in my experience, gynecologists here refer to a woman's uterus as her tummy. And they wouldn't get away with that for two seconds in, in the States. You know, we know our own bodies, we're adults. And so one of the things that I wonder about is part of a public health issue 
is educating people about their own bodies, about being, about understanding and knowing from, from childhood that this is your body, these are your body parts, this is what, these are how things work together. So the doctor isn't sitting there across from someone who says, well, I, pr- I didn't ask questions because I probably wouldn't understand the answer anyway. And there's no expectation. And I say to them, part of the doctor's job is explaining it so you understand it. Okay. And people get mad at me. Right. So there's a whole big public health issue. And, and also, I have to laugh when you talk about fluoride, because I remember in the States, in the Midwest, in the 50s, when we got fluoridated water, everybody, there was so much talk against it. It was a communist plot. Hmm. <laughs> it was. It was. <laughs> okay, Anor. Yes. Uh, I, I think it, it's entirely true, and there's a huge literature now on the, the educated patient. And I think the educated patient, the, the inquiring patient, the patient who is able to say, look, I didn't quite understand that. Could you explain it again? Uh, or uh, uh, I uh, need to think about that. I need some more. There are lots and lots of things that uh, patients have to do too, and I very much share your view Patients are adults when they're not children, so to speak, Mm. and uh, many of them are very knowledgeable, particularly in the days of the Internet, about their own condition and very able to carry a conversation. My perception is, and there are probably some people here who are medical students or who know about this, my perception is that the uh, quality of communication of people in medical training today, their capacities for communication are enormously better than they used to be. But it is slow changing a culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, know, you, you meet the people you meet. Um, but there's another side to this, which you touched on briefly, which is um, why do people get defensive in this life? And why do people who take themselves to be experts about something to get defensive? Typically because uh, the situation has been structured as an adversarial situation in which uh, their lives, their futures, their professions are at risk. So very, very often, and there's a lot of empirical research on this too, it is absolutely clear that if there is quick communication with a patient about an operation not going as well as should have or something going wrong, then... Patients are grown-ups. They know that the world doesn't work to perfection. But if there's defensiveness and hiding of information, then uh, you end up in court, typically. So the question about improving communication is one I take extremely seriously here. Okay. Um, I I can't resist saying that... uh, So 25 years ago, my sister-in-law was... uh, trying to convince her doctor that she should have a home birth for a first child, which is you know, quite unusual in those cases, and it wasn't going well. But, but at some point, Debbie, my sister-in-law, got to see the notes the doctor had written down, and on her medical notes it said, Guardian Reader. Uh, so, <laughs> the so the, the g- gentleman in the third row, here at the end, end of the third row. That's lovely. <laughs> Thank you. I was very much struck that uh, Professor O'Neill's remarks that re- reminded me very much of your Reith lectures. And it struck me that, uh, particularly when you go wider than the purely medical one, that uh, one of the issues is uh, deception. 
Yes. And, and what amounts to that? And to what extent is it a problem how... I think that there is probably a difference between a legal conception of deception and a moral one. But uh, as one way of getting away from the bogus sort of exercises where there's far too many boxes, I mean, just as an example, if I want to buy something, what I often ask is, I don't want to know what it can do, or as well as that, what can't it do? (laughs) (laughs) Very neat. Um, Yes. Uh, Deception is absolutely crucial in in all of this. And, of course, uh, deception undermines trust and it invalidates consent. And uh, what strikes me as interesting is that you can have uh, a great deal, a huge quantity of information presented, but because that information was not intelligible to or digestible by the person to whom it was presented, uh, they were totally startled by the outcome, uh, even though, yes, it had all been, quotes, communicated. It's another example of why I lay the emphasis on the communicating and uh, the listening. I suspect that the doctors we really admire are those who are good listeners. I also suspect that they are the people who learn a lot more about their patients than those who are either too hurried or too weary or too uninterested to do any listening. Uh, thank you very much. I was particularly interested in the portion of the talk on thinking about consent. In sorry, terms could you go a little more slowly, please? Oh, sorry, I was particularly interested in the part of the talk on thinking about consent, consent in terms of communication, um, and it got me wondering about whether or not it would be useful to look at some of the work that philosophers of language have done in the sexual consent literature, where people like Jennifer Hornsby seem to spend a lot of time talking about things like uptake, which is you know when mm-hmm. the hearer both hears and understands yes. things, and if that would be a useful place to look for thinking about how to think about consent in a medical context. Yes, the first thing I ever wrote on consent was called Between Consenting Adults, and a lot of the examples were taken from sexual contexts. It's an interesting context because it's uh, one in which, uh, despite the intimacy, a degree of uh, pretense and misrepresentation is quite common. I would also, uh, and I think Jennifer Hornsby's work, but also Ray Langton's work on pornography is highly relevant here. And uh, that phrase, between consenting adults, that I've used a couple of times, is taken from the literature, but not just philosophical, but of course also legal, on uh, uh, sexual relationships, so that uh, on one view, what happens between consenting adults is ipso facto okay, but the whole problem is to be sure what's consent, particularly in relationships where there is, in the nature of the case, a great deal of uh, is not public and the sort of ordinary disciplines of being in the public eye don't apply uh, so that people get... Uh, bullied or intimidated or the rest of it and at a certain point one says yes it might have looked like consent but it wasn't and I think that sexual relations are and and of course running the whole way from 
relationships within a long-term relationship to uh, uh, prostitution and short-term relationships are a very rich field of examples for uh, uh, failed consent. Front here. You spoke about the emphasis on communication. And on Can you, you microphone a bit closer? And on making sure that um, the patients have understood the risks and the nature of treatment. But I was just <laughs> very loud now. The, from the point of view of people in the back, your voice is going in and out as you move the, the mic. <laughs> um, but even if they understand the treatment and the nature of the risks, um, question marks might still be raised over the consent that's neighbor, eventually get given. Get your neighbour to hold your mic and then you'll be able to gesture. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, even if they understand all the natures of the risks, they might still question marks might still be raised over their consent that they eventually be yeah. given, um, because a lot of factors can influence a decision. Um, do you think, sort of, partly? I fear that partly because of the rise of autonomy and the shift away from paternalism in medical practice, what has happened is that doctors become so scared about influencing and coercing decisions that they allow lots of other influences and lots of other sort of factors that might distort their decision-making capacities to go unchecked. Um, do you think this is a problem and do you think that within this sort of communication there is a role and what role would it be for doctors in trying to identify and challenge potential influences and potential distortions? Well, I mean, doctors um, have limited time and um, a human like the rest of us, so um, they cannot wholly carry the relationship. It has to be carried also by the patient. And I take it that that is what one means when one's saying that the patient is adult and consents and refuses. It isn't that I can behave like a child and be treated as an adult, so to speak. So... Um, I may have lost part of where your question was coming from because I too was hearing it <laughs> in and out. Uh, but I think that uh, you know that some people are really very good at listening despite the oddities of conversations um, uh, and hearing what's really there. But uh, there are real difficulties in communicating uh, difficulties because patients may be very reluctant to say what is really bothering them. That's a, a, a long-standing feature of uh, miscommunication in clinical context. And then there's all the business about uh, doctors, in some doctors being hurried, being arrogant, not knowing enough, not knowing the individual patient, not having a long-term doctor-patient relationship. Uh, People fantasize about what they think is a bygone world with wise doctors and long-term relationships. That on the whole is not where we're living now, and I think that that's something that we probably have to recognize. Um, and uh, so we have to improve the doctors, but improve our performance as patients too. Yeah. Well, doctors had a good bedside manner because they didn't have anything else. Really, they didn't, they didn't have, have any drugs. I, I, I think that there, there is an issue, I, I think, that perhaps this question also gets to, which is um, another way in which communication fails now, 
which is in a doctor's feeling that their job is to lay out the options but not help the patient oh, make yes. a choice. Oh, yes, I meant to get to yeah. that question in responding mm. to you because you, you did raise that. And uh, sometimes doctors are so... Uh, aware that they shouldn't be telling their patients what to do and being non-directive. But I believe that clever patients get round them quite well. And I'm told that quite often patients say, Doctor, if it was your daughter, what would you uh, suggest? (laughs) So it it is a difficulty. If you lay it upon a profession that they must not be directive, um, and then they say, here are the options... Uh, it's quite difficult for the patient and mm. at that point. Yeah. Okay, the gentleman in the blue shirt's in the middle. So I've got two people next to each other. We'll take you two next. Okay. Um, hello. Oh, a bit loud. Um, I wanted to ask about cases where somebody is informed and they think they understand, but they actually don't, but not when it, that it's a result of a lack of, say, medical expertise, but when it's because of limits to human cognitive abilities. And I'm thinking in particular of contexts where somebody says, oh, if I do X, then there's a 0.1% chance or a 0.01% chance that Y will happen and Y is an adverse outcome. Uh, and people might think that they know what that means, but actually they don't really have a grasp because they can't, you know, human brains can't understand probabilities that are that small. So I just wanted to hear yeah. your views on It's a, it's a really cases. good example because uh, we have plenty of sort of empirical work, uh, sort of, um, common or garden sociological work, which shows that many people have very, very poor understanding of elementary statistical notions. Uh, so what to do about it? Uh, because between professionals, it will be quite a useful shorthand. And you say, well, uh, yes, things can go wrong with this operation. And... Uh, uh, 2% of patients find that they can't walk afterwards, whatever it might be. And uh, the person who's listening to this thinks, well, if a bullet's got your name on it, it's got your name on it, and sort of bypasses the question as being not a practical question. And I think we could do much better, and this isn't only in the medical context, in our communication of risk and probabilities and what I sometimes fantasize about is a sort of um, everyday uh, uh, metric of which isn't really a metric it's just comparators that people understand uh, like well you've got as much chance of dying of this as you have of being run over by a car that's coming at five miles an hour and is half a mile away Oh, but that's not a very good one. Do you see what I mean? We need very commonsensical ways of trying to get uh, the idea of it's a remote risk, it's a slight risk, it's a risk you really need to think about, it's a substantial risk, and this is a very, very dangerous treatment, but you don't have any other alternatives that I can offer you. And, you know, for many patients, it would be useful to have... Uh, this presented in very everyday language. I mean, follow- a challenge rather than yeah. a solution. I mean, following on from that, um, there, there's a fantastic work by uh, Gigerenza, Gert Gigerenza about false positive and yeah. false negative. And uh, his research shows that doctors don't understand this any better than patients do. <laughs> and that, the, that most doctors don't understand. I mean, maybe things have changed in the 10 years since he wrote the book, but most 
doctors just don't understand what it means to say a test is 99% accurate. Uh, they think it means that you know, if it comes up positive, there's a 99% chance that you've gotten the disease. But it, all it means is a test is 99% accurate. And so if the disease is very rare, there's still a very low chance you've gotten the disease, even if the test comes up positive. Uh, and he, you know, he tested many doctors, including consultants. And um, on the whole, they were no better than random at getting this sort of thing right. And they're the people giving you the advice. So you need, you need some very commonsensical comparators here which people yeah. can actually understand because every day, in a practical way, we all face uncertainty and cope with risk yeah. and do it competently. And, you know, you cross the road to get here. How did you do it? Not by being a miraculously good statistician, but you made an ordinary, yeah. decent judgment that worked. Apparently, we're much better at understanding natural frequencies and percentages. So saying one in 100 is easier to understand than 1% because you can do uh, mental arithmetic with natural frequencies but not with percentages, apparently. But I'm not sure I understand that. So uh, anyway, we'll take the next question. Thank you. Could you talk about the double-blind clinical Is a microphone and is, is your mic on? I do. Can you hear it now? Yes, when you hold it up to the mic. Very, very close. (laughs) Double-blind clinical trials. Um, These can be... If you could angle it, that would help. (laughs) Very, very close to me. There's something going wrong. There's something wrong with it. Tilt it like this. Okay, here we go. And I, I heard you, you, you were asking about double, bu- double blind, yes, blind trials. Yes, the, yes. Uh, and sometimes the drug which is proposed can be of benefit, and the doctor knows, but they're not sure. The difficulty of giving informed consent to those sort of patients is that they may not get anything, they may just get um, um, the placebo, placebo yeah. and it's very, very difficult to give them enough information for which they can make their mind up. Of course... Uh, um, double-blind trials have been one of the crucial challenges uh, within the area where you uh, can and need to get in, uh, adequately informed consent from patients. And what is fascinating is uh, the number of people who are willing and often eager to take part in these trials, although it is basic to taking part, that you have no guarantee that you are getting uh, the uh, ingredient that is being tested. Um, So what to do? Well, I think we're seeing a great ferment now because the double-blind trial uh, was... Uh, an answer to many problems of uh, misreporting uh, and misunderstanding of the differentials between different treatments. Uh, So it, it is, people refer to it as the gold standard, but I don't think we can stay on this gold standard because it presumes that it will be possible and affordable to recruit large cohorts of patients uh, for each trial. Now, in the era of the blockbuster drug, which, although it had never worked for everybody, worked for very large numbers of patients, that could be done. But now, uh, in the era of stratified medicine, where many of the uh, patient populations for whom a drug is effective are very small, it's 
not possible and not affordable to collect the sample of people who, uh, including the controls, uh, for testing a drug. And I, I was interested that uh, uh, in November, uh, George Freeman MP, who is uh, the uh, Minister for uh, Spokesman for Life Sciences, um, announced an inquiry into the systems of drug testing. And I, I'm finding that there are many different uh, discussions going on at present about adequate ways of testing. And I think that fundamentally the questions have arisen because we're not looking for blockbusters. I remember talking to the head of R&D for Smith-Kline Beecham 15 years ago, and he said we're not going to try to develop another generation of cytotoxic um, um, chemo drugs because they are too hard on patients. And you know, that's a while ago, but now we are developing drugs which, of course, because they're for tiny cohorts, are not of widespread use. But if you have the right variant of the said disease, they are, in some cases, magic bullets. Mm. I mean, there, there is a whole range of ethical questions that come up, you know, irrespective of the question about whether you know, we'll see large-scale double-blind testing in the future. So I, I think you know, one of the concerns is people sign up in the hope they're going to be an experimental arm, uh, yeah, and they're not interested, of course, in being a, in the control arm. They, they want the drug. They don't want to be part of a research project. Fair enough. And, and, you know, and, and this happens. So supposedly um, in, for some of the early HIV drugs, AZT, there were patient support groups or rather research subject support groups where they identified each other and shared their medications just to make sure everyone got some of it. <laughs> completely and, mucking yeah, up Yeah, it completely ruins the experiment. <laughs> but, of course, if you were in that situation, that's what you would do. And so does that show, in a sense, you haven't consented to it or you've deceptively consented to it in, in some hope of getting something out? And, of course, now, in the age of the Internet, um, there'd be no way of stopping people doing these type of self-support groups, it, it, if there really was a there's life-saving There's some, some very interesting interest, initiatives. This, mm. uh, there's one um, uh, uh, part, participant-led research or patient-led research is one interesting initiative where people uh, agree to put their uh, medical data and all their data, mm. no holding back, online. And there's a, um, a platform which you can read about at a website called Patients Like Me, and um, uh, they share their data and their experiences. And um, they've had a certain amount of difficulty, which is why uh, a group of us, mostly lawyers and philosophers, got a bit interested, because um, when they tried to publish their results, they were not enormous results, but they were fast and very cheap. Uh, I'll tell you an example. Um, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, um, um, AZ, I can't get the initials, um, but anyhow, horrible disease. And there was a belief that maybe taking lithium could be helpful. So uh, a group of patients decided we'll do it. And the statistics were done entirely properly by patients like me, and the answer was got remarkably quickly and cheaply, no, lithium is not helpful. 
And uh, that's one example. However, what these groups found was that uh, when they submitted their results to a medical journal, the medical journal said, but you haven't had ethics review. (laughs) And so they said, but we're delighted to submit to an ethics review. Though, because we're not, we don't have, uh, uh, we're not part of a university or anything, we don't have our own ethics committee. And uh, when they uh, tried to submit to ethics review to other places, they said, well, we can't review your work because you don't have a principal investigator. I think this is going to change, but this is an example of the sorts of things that need to be changed in order to get away from the assumption that the only responsible way to do it is with the double-blind trial, which uh, uh, is, of course, statistically very important because it it builds in uh, conditions where the placebo effect can't swamp the clinical effect of the drugs, which is really important. Okay, thank you. Next question. Yeah. My, my question is about empirical research in the social sciences. At the moment, it's extremely hard to get ethical approval where any sort of deception's involved, even when it's very minor. So um, even in the case of a study that I was trying to put forward, where it, um, it wouldn't actually involve deception, it just wasn't making them fully aware of the aims of the study because it would skew their answers to the questions. Um, Firstly, I was wondering whether you thought that that concern was 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 misplaced, of all that, whether that's the, that that's right that the committees are that concerned with it. And secondly, I wondered whether there's any room for notions of hypothetical consent, where the deception is so minor that if you were to ask the participants whether they mind mind not being give, disclosed the aims right from the start, they'd almost certainly have consented and said that that was fine. So I was just wondering what your viewpoint it's, was on It's there. a very good question, because what you're describing is something that has arisen, as it were, as part of the rise and rise of informed consent until we've got what Roger Brownsword, professor across the road at King's London in Law, has dubbed consent fetishism, and where people think that if they can get consent, that's a cast-iron guarantee that everything is proper. And if they can't get consent, that's a very proper restraint on research. As your example shows, it's not so simple. And when you think about uh, the way in which consent procedures rely on disclosure, people will say complete disclosure. And you might scratch your head and say, complete? How complete? And that's where you get into the problems about what is fully specific consent. How much do you have to disclose? I haven't referred to one of the other canonical documents in this area, which is the Declaration of Helsinki. Uh, It's almost as old as the Nuremberg Code, but it is a professional code. It's the World Medical Association, so it's doctors who've devised this. And every four years, they make it more perfect. (laughs) And so if you uh, do, which I have done in uh, uh, an ill-spent moment, look at the successive editions of the Declaration of Helsinki, you will find themselves, them jacking up the standards for consent every four years, making them bigger and better and more beautiful, and making it more and more certain that there has to be pretended compliance with the standards. It's a, I think it's a fertile uh, document to look at for seeing where consent overreaches itself. Mm. I think uh, behind the, the question is the thought that 
if, if I've got this right, that um, you know, the experiments that really founded the discipline of social psychology can't, couldn't be done now. So the Milgram experiments, yeah, for yeah, example, uh, Stanford, Stanford prison experiments, and even some of the, the simpler ones where people are told they're doing one thing and it turns out they're doing something else without being at all invasive, um, a lot of those would not uh, pass because you, as soon as you try and get the consent form, you, the consent form signed, you give the game away. Um, so it seems like it, do you, it is a solution to that to have second-order consent, uh, to consent to some or other... Uh, thing that might be deceptive to have hypothetical consent or just accept we can't do social psychology yeah. anymore. Well, it, uh, it, it's a very interesting one, and it's mm-hmm. a, a great pity that people always cite the Milgram experiments mm-hmm. in discussing this because uh, those were probably quite egregious uh, mm-hmm. uh, bits of deception. And for those of you who don't know it, they were done in Yale in what the sixties, seventies. Um, well, certainly not later than seventies. No. Yeah. And mm. um, Stanley Milgram uh, had a setup with uh, some apparatus and a dial, and the dial went from pain-free to extremely painful. And allegedly, uh, one person who was acting the experimenter was giving electric shocks to the other person who was the subject and the question was how high could you raise uh, the supposed level of electrical shock now both people were uh, actors and the real experimental subject was uh, the the person who uh, was witnessing this? No, no, it was the person who was moving, the, moving adjusting the dial. Adjusting the dial. And yeah. what turned out that lots of people, particularly when they got irritated with uh, uh, the, the person giving persistent wrong answers, would raise it to very painful, just to, like that. Or to death, in fact. Oh, death. Uh, but but, but it, <laughs> what, it, what it showed, I mean, it, it was meant to be testing obedience to authority. And, that was and, right. Yeah. And testing whether superior orders was an acceptable defense or, or not. Uh, I, so how psychologically is compelling is it to be told to do something? And it turns out if someone is standing there wearing a white coat, holding a clipboard, they can pretty much get you to do anything, <laughs> rough, roughly speaking, but by what, telling what, you to do What is it. interesting yeah. is that there were people who were invited to be experimental subjects who said, I'm having none of that. And so it yeah. wasn't that everybody took a white coat and a clipboard as authoritative, yeah. but some people but did. Many, many surprisingly, did. numbers did. Okay, so question there. Thank you. Um, I was. It's an open-ended question to both of you, but I was interested in what you thought the limits might be around um, public health and consent. And I was thinking particularly of things like vaccines, where, for example, people decide not to va- vaccinate their children based on what seems like you know, to them an equally plausible claim that MMR causes autism or something. Uh, Or in the case of the nurse uh, who had Ebola and then was fine but went by uh, cycling, what are the limits to which we can kind of rely on somebody else um, not giving consent and say that's okay? And is there a point at which we say actually your consent is not, it can be sacrificed for a greater good? I think there are some distinctions to be drawn on refusing to have one's children vaccinated. Uh, One question I would ask any parent who says this is, do you think your child will be safer or more at risk if you don't have her vaccinated? 
And typically it turns out that what they are actually thinking is because other people are having their children vaccinated, my child will be protected by herd immunity. And um, yes, uh, there are very occasional instances of vaccine damage, but there are colossal damage inflicted by the diseases against which the vaccination is done. So the idea that anybody who understood it would say, I won't have my child vaccinated against measles, which has a certain death rate and a very considerable extreme damage rate, they aren't thinking about their own child then. The MMR case is, of course, very interesting because, as you probably know, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who was the source of the claims about the dangers of the MMR vaccine, was shown to have committed scientific misconduct and has been struck off. But there is, both in England and in Germany, uh, a very considerable number of people who fancy they're doing their own children a good turn by not having them vaccinated. I notice nobody in the developed world who has seen these diseases for real says I won't have my child vaccinated unless you get to the places where there is uh, a campaign against the health teams uh, for political reasons, and that's the northwest frontier of Pakistan and northern Nigeria. I think um, there's also something else that comes up in some other areas of public health, such as infectious disease, where um, you'd think, for example, as happened with HIV AIDS, that you need to have fairly close surveillance of people who are infectious and to perhaps shut the borders and so on. But I think um, it it turns out that coercive measures are self-defeating in those cases, because you know, people won't get diagnosed, you know, they won't go for testing if there are going to be consequences and so on, and you write things underground. So in a way, you know, luckily, um, you know, arguments from coercion or anti-coercion are better for public health than arguments for coercion in the case of infectious disease. I mean, there are, obviously there are going to be exceptions in that case. So if uh, Ebola arrived here, I think we would probably all feel that coercive measures are on balance justified even though you know, it, it could be counterproductive. It could be because people, again, might not go for testing if they think there are going to be draconian consequences. You know, if you're getting married in a week and uh, you, you think you may have Ebola, are you going to get tested? Are you going to give it a, give it a chance? Right? So you know, a lot depends on what happens if you're, if you're found to have the disease. No, I, I think that that's uh, uh, fair enough. Uh, I, I've been very struck by the specificity of diseases. Let me give you two examples. Uh, HIV AIDS, I recommend anybody interested in this read a book by Norman Fowler, who was um, the, the minister for, junior minister for health under Maggie Thatcher, who is responsible in large measure for this country's very comparatively good performance on stemming AIDS. And he did it entirely by saying this is a public health measure and we have to use public health means to deal with it. Uh, He's recently, a year ago, has done a comparative study of the societies that have made an absolute pig's ear of dealing with HIV AIDS. And the particularly bad ones include Russia and uh, 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 Kazakhstan, uh, not Kazakhstan, 
Tajikistan and South, South Africa's better now, but some African countries. On the whole, the repressive measures have not worked. The best country is Australia, and the best city is Sydney. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the comparative evidences, I find, very, very compelling. But take a different example. Do you remember a few years ago SARS? I can't even remember what the in, uh, initials stand for. It was a... Sudden in there somewhere. Sudden... Uh, Animal respiratory something syndrome syndrome, yeah. uh, and it spread mm. from China. In fact, mm. it started in the animal markets in South China, and it, it there was an outbreak, and the mortality was high enough that it was a very serious thing with global communications. It travelled very fast. However, it it was. Uh, caught within six months, and we haven't heard of it since. Why? First of all, admirable work by WHO on uh, uh, identifying the virus and uh, the infectious agent. It turned out that the mode of transmission was uh, not respiratory but fecal contamination. But the thing that is most striking, two things. The Chinese got on top of it very fast. They enforced quarantine. Chinese Canadians, who went on holiday to Hong Kong or China and returned with it, uh, they didn't obey quarantine. And the epidemic in China has a double... Sorry, in Canada has a double hump because particularly the teenagers said, quarantine? I can't stay home. I'm going out to see my friends, and that, uh, uh, that more cases arose. So I think a question arises, how prepared is a society to use quarantine, compulsory home arrest, as it were, when it is necessary? Okay, so we're almost at the end of our lot of time, but I'll take one last question from the gentleman. Hello, thank you very much. Uh, what I just wanted to ask is about life and death situations. So if there is a person who goes to a doctor and he says, I'm going to die, or no, the doctor says to the patient, you're going to die, but I have this, um, I've got this vaccine that I've never tested on people before, but it could save your life, and the patient says yes. Could that consent, could one say that he didn't really consent because his vision was blurred or his judgment was blurred? It's very interesting because I find these questions about would that be adequately robust consent um, uh, very difficult until you specify in very great detail what was going on, what was understood, what was not understood, and so on. Uh, Nobody thinks that we can have what uh, I'm afraid people gesture to, which is fully specific, fully explicit consent. Uh, But... Your question is really about whether the fact that somebody is in a desperate situation uh, undermines their consent. And I would say, irritating, yes. In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. And people all the time uh, facing very difficult situations uh, discuss with their surgeons whether they will or won't have an operation. I don't think that consent is automatically invalid, but even if the uh, prognosis 
both of having the operation and of not having the operation are dire. Um, but it is important that there is an adequate understanding of what's going on and, of course, that all the other conditions of medical ethics, namely that the doctors are genuinely offering truthful information and a reasonable account of uh, the way in which it could affect patients, health and interests. I, mean, I, I think the question is also getting at something that, of which there's increasing discussion now, and agitation from the pharmaceutical industries. I think it takes so long to test a drug. If it's a life-saving drug, uh, it takes five years, ten years to test it. Think of all the number of people who are dying who could have been saved. So even though we call it safety testing, it's actually a risk-risk trade-off. And what we've done is prefer the deaths of people from natural causes than the deaths of people from adverse drug reaction, which may be correct, but it's something that needs to be discussed much more openly than it is at the moment. I think also you're talking about these very experimental drugs, that, and, and now there's been a type of pressure to say, well, if a doctor has a very experimental drug and someone is you know, within a few months of dying, then what is there to lose by, by well, taking... Yeah. yeah. Well, well, the vaccine. If you've got it, the vaccine's too late. So you need you need something else. The vaccine's yeah, a different yeah, matter. Yeah. But. Okay. Well, on, on that, I think probably I hand back to Peter to close. Yeah, the shop. I think we yeah. will have to finish. But thank you so much for a really interesting discussion, particularly to everybody who asked a question, and to our two uh, participants, Professor Jonathan Wolfe and Professor Honora Neal. Thank you.